Okay, so we're going to be reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11 this evening. Let's start at verse 1. Let's start at verse 1. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 11. This is the uh, second part in our series that we're beginning on 1 Peter. Very excited to do this. Very excited to be meditating on this book with you guys for uh, the duration of my time with you. And I do love uh, this passage. I do love what this text has to say to us today, and I'm very excited to share it with you. So 1 Peter 1, we're going to read from the beginning of the chapter to verse 11. This is the holy and inspired word of God. Let us listen with reverence and with awe. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. Let's pray. Father, as the deer pants for streams of water, so we pant for your living and active word that is sharper than any double-edged sword and cuts the deepest portions of the heart, exposing what is wicked and encouraging and building up faith. Father, we know that the, the weakness of the minds of the weaknesses of our mind are many, that we are often by Sunday evening tired and, and exhausted. And so, Father, we ask that you would overcome the infirmities of our flesh and the stubbornness of our minds and enable us this evening to be encouraged by your word and that it would lift us up from the dimness of life in a sin-cursed world to hold fast to Christ Jesus and his promises to, to us in his word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are really continuing on from last week, considering what it means to be pilgrims um, as far as we possibly can, and especially in this opening section, that will be the dominant theme that expresses, or, or the dominant channel through which we interpret the text. How is what Peter's saying, how, uh, addressing the plight and the problems that the pilgrim experiences in the world? And so last week we looked at the fact that he calls us pilgrims and how important that is for us to know, And this week, he takes it a step further. 
Peter addresses pilgrims whose experiences in the wilderness and whose suffering often leads them to hopelessness. And we certainly know that's the case, don't we? That life in the wilderness is so much more dreary and disappointing than what we oftentimes dream up and conjure up in our hearts and minds. That life in the wilderness doesn't promise what our fantasies or our deepest desires would lead us to believe that is good and right and proper for us to grasp. That life in the wilderness oftentimes brings upon us calamities so unspeakable that we don't know what to do in the face of it. And it leaves us, all of us, whether uh, in each and every circumstance, it leaves us feeling hopeless. And this would certainly be the case for a church that is beginning to experience suffering for the sake of Christ and wondering why they're suffering and dissatisfied and disappointed and frustrated with the circumstances of their life. Doesn't feel good. So today he addresses the pilgrim and he tells them of what awaits them and how they'll ultimately wind up crossing the Jordan. That that is an unequivocal, unquestionable reality that God will bring his pilgrim across the Jordan. Once again, as I was thinking and meditating on this text, I was reminded of a favorite story of mine. It's called Cry, the Beloved Country by uh, Alan Payton. The story is about many things, but one of, the, one of the primary plots throughout the story follows a pastor in South Africa who's from a small village whose son has gone to Johannesburg, the equivalent of Los Angeles. And his son has gone to Johannesburg and they've lost contact with him, so he pursues him and tries to find, after a great deal of time, what has happened to my beloved son. And what he finds is that his son has committed murder. His son has impregnated a woman who is not his wife. And his son is set for the noose. And it is at this juncture that Stephen Kumalu, a pastor in a small rural village in South Africa, confesses and cries out, who knows the secret of our earthly pilgrimage? Who knows for what we live and struggle and die? Who knows why the warmth and the, and, the, and the weight of another child, another person's child, is up such comfort even when one's own is destined for the noose. And in this moment of desperate hopelessness, this pastor confesses it's a mystery too deep to be grasped. How easy the hopelessness of life's circumstances and situations can overcome us with an insurmountable amount of doubt and hopelessness and darkness. Now, I'm, I'm young. I'm 26. I cannot begin to imagine some of the dark circumstances, the hopeless circumstances, the tragedies that have come across many of your lives. And the ways that that led you to a time of spiritual darkness. The ways that that led you to wonder what's the secret of the earthly pilgrimage. How do I make it across the Jordan? Well, Peter's point is this. We know the secret of our earthly pilgrimage and why we suffer. And we have good reason and we have good hope. Despite the bleak and troubling circumstances of our life.
So he holds out to them in this text the basis of their hope, the resurrection of Christ, the content of their hope, the indescribable, incomprehensible nature of the inheritance for which we long, and the safeguard of their hope, the reality that God will bring us across that Jordan by building up our faith when we ourselves would think it's too weak. So hope's basis this evening Hope's content and hope's safeguard. Well, hope's basis. So the first thing that Peter tells us as he dives into this text and begins to unpack what brings the pilgrim hope during a a, a hopeless pilgrimage, an otherwise hopeless pilgrimage, is that it is according to his great mercy. Now, there is a doctrinal point that we want to make here that's an important point to make. Mercy and grace are not the same thing. These are two words that oftentimes in our, our, our common use, our, the vernacular language, get muddled and blended together. Mercy is a gift, a free gift that is not deserved. Gr- excuse me, grace is a free gift that is not deserved. Mercy, however, deals with what we're not given in the context of a legal ordeal. It deals with the fact that we deserve, within Scripture, we deserve judgment, we deserve condemnation, we deserve death, and instead, God has poured that out on another in order that he might enter into a covenantal relationship with us. So that instead of visiting us in judgment for our iniquity, he visits us with kindness, loving kindness. Now this notion is supported and bolstered by the fact that in the New Testament, The word for mercy is the same word that the Old Testament uses for God's covenant faithfulness, his loving kindness, his steadfast love and mercy. So according to his great mercy, you are in a relationship with the Father of all of creation, not in judgment, but in peace and reconciliation. Second thing, as a result of his mercy and covenant faithfulness, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This again brings out another doctrinal point that we want to draw out. uh, One that's very important for our doctrine of salvation in particular. He initiates. God initiates. He doesn't do so by overcoming our will. He doesn't do so by uh, eroding our free will, but he brings us to life and calls us to faith by the operation of His Spirit in our hearts. And it's noteworthy here. Death is God's judgment against sin, and it foreshadows His ultimate covenant judgment, hell. Death is an image, a picture of that. And so instead of this, He gives us the exact opposite of what we deserve. He brings us to spiritual life, to have a hope that is not unbased, that is not unfounded, that is not glim or out of the blue, that is not self, self-conjured. He gives us a hope that is rooted in the objective reality that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. As surely as Christ was raised from the dead, you have hope. For Peter, the resurrection of Christ changes Everything. 
It changes everything. It gives us both new life and it gives us both, it gives us also an explosive, radiant, and dynamic kind of hope that cannot be bound by death. Now, there is, of course, a great irony for the Apostle Peter of all people to describe hope as living, isn't there? Peter, the apostle, shattered in the upper room with the rest of the apostles, the ringleader, as it were, of the apostles, a very prominent figure, one of the three, hanging his head after the crucifixion of Christ when he had heard everything that was foretold of Jesus, that, they, that Jesus had told them he was going to suffer and endure and that the third day he would raise, be raised. And they have no hope. Again, hope is another one of those words muddled by our everyday use in our culture. People hope in things all the time. When I was in college, we uh, had the liberty at my senior year of going out to Lake Roberts in northeastern New Mexico in the middle of January on a fishing trip. One of my friends picked up the canoes or the, the kayaks from his parents, picked up the fishing rods and the bait, and so we set out hopefully out on the lake. I'm a novice fisher. I had no idea what I was doing. I was trusting his word. And so we hook the bait onto these uh, fishing rods. We stick the fishing rods in the back of the kayaks and we start paddling out on this lake. For two days in freezing cold New Mexico, my Californian summer, summer self froze on that lake paddling, hoping to catch a fish. We did not catch any fish. That's one way we use hope in our culture. But Peter says our hope is living because Christ himself was raised, which makes it quite unlike my hopes as a novice fisher of catching any fish in the middle of winter. Spiritual life is created, fueled, sustained by the power of his indestructible life. The fact that we are born again. Hope is created fueled and sustained by the resurrection power of his indestructible life. So the life that Christ has now supersedes the experience of life that we know and that we have on a daily basis. And it is glorified resurrection life that in essence is pouring out from the kingdom that is to come into the present experience of believers so that they don't have to endure hopelessness in the present. So hope's basis is the resurrection of Christ. To deny hope would be to doubt the resurrection. And as surely as our salvation is founded on the reality of the resurrection, we have every reason to be people characterized by dynamic, over, uh, uh, overcoming hope. What about Hope's content. What are we hoping in? Peter moves to unpack the content of our hope. And he characterizes the object of our hope in heaven as an inheritance. Now in Numbers 18.20, the Lord speaking to Aaron says this, You will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share and your inheritance among the Israelites. So there's a covenantal context to this word inheritance. 
especially for those that Peter will go on to label the kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests after the order of Melchizedek, a, a much better priestly order in Christ, through Christ, one that does not pass or fade, one that is eternal. So this kingdom of priests now has an inheritance, and that inheritance is who or what? God himself. What differentiates Christianity from every other religion's conception of heaven is that bliss unending, as we considered last week, or a palace of virgins or our own planet, is not the main objective when we think about the inheritance that is held out to us. What we long for most in heaven is God himself, particularly as he's made himself known to us in the face of his Son. Think of, for instance, Philippians 1.21, where Paul, speaking of his imminent death, says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To go and to be with Christ is far better. Or Psalm 16, a favorite for many saints. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance, and your presence is fullness of joy, the paths of life, and at your right hand are pleasures evermore. What we long for is God himself. He promises us, he promises himself to us as our inheritance. And he gives himself to us as our God forevermore. Isn't that marvelous? That the creator of the universe would condescend in covenantal mercy upon a formerly faithless people that that. that that they might behold him and have him as their own possession unto eternity. If you think on a wedding, this is oftentimes maybe perhaps an odd concept for us because we're so used to thinking of bliss unending to a land of prosperity where milk and honey flow. And of course, those are accurate pictures of heaven. Think of a wedding It's nothing if the groom isn't there. What that bride longs for on that special day is the moment when she rounds that corner and she beholds the the, the face of her beloved, her groom, at the end of the aisle and she goes to meet him there. Without him, the wedding isn't a wedding at all. And it's the presence of the bridegroom that makes the wedding, something exciting for the bride. So what enables us and encourages us amidst the hopelessness and distressing situations of life to persevere until the end is beholding Christ, is seeing him as he is, where he is. And as it were, rounding the corner on the aisle to behold the face of the husband of the church who gave his life as a ransom for our own. Now, Peter specifically describes, now that's that's an important theological point that we want to make, so that our objectives are rooted in proper theology, but Peter does describe indeed what that land is like here in this text. And he he uses terms that describe the nature of our heavenly inheritance, and there's three of them, each of which indicates something that was 
intrinsically flawed about the land that Israel came to possess in Canaan. First, he calls it imperishable. It's not subject to death, destruction, devastation, or invasion by foreign armies. Second, undefiled. It can never be spoiled, corrupted, or polluted, but it remains free from any blemish. And third, it is unfading. It does not lose quality or character over time. So you think on, for instance, if you were to inherit your father's, my father doesn't have one of these, but if you were to inherit your father's 1980 Porsche 1911, by the time that you have inherited that car, it's over 40 years old, it has begun to fade, it has begun to be defiled, it has begun to perish. And it will continue to do so. One car wreck, perishable. One glass of spilt milk, the upholstery ruined. The paint, the sun takes care of. That can be quite frustrating, I think. That gives us something to look forward to, doesn't it? One of the worst things about this age is that everything is fading. Everything is almost like the wind. There for a moment and gone. Ungraspable, ungraspable, ephemeral. But here's the thing, the inheritance for which we long is so, so, so much better than we can ever think or imagine. Especially, I think, this is the case for pilgrims whose challenge it is while in the wilderness, to conceive of something so much better. Because of our experience, what we're used to tasting in the wilderness is bread, and only bread. Poor quality water, and only poor quality water. Or poor quality wine, and only poor quality wine. We are limited by our experience. And not just by our experience, but by the reality that we are created beings infinitely removed from the magnitude of God's perfection or the perfection of the the place that Christ has gone to prepare for us. If you were to think, for example, with me, if you worked a job in in some kind of sales, sales position where you were offered a bonus at the end of the year for uh, your exceptional performance, what would drive you then oftentimes uh, in the muddy days and ins and outs of work life would be that bonus. That bonus held out, you would hope, would be commensurate with, reflect the amount of work that you've put in, the number of sales that you've made. Now, in the scheme of redemption, we aren't the ones who are actually putting in the work for this bonus. Christ has done it, but it doesn't mean that we have to work. We don't have to work. And yet, the reality is, it can often be debilitating to persevere while in the wilderness. And yet, because of this spiritual recreation that Christ has initiated in the hearts of believers, we do persevere because of what we are. In other words, pilgrims, very simple, pilgrims do pilgrim things, don't they? Pilgrims persevere as pilgrims. But unlike that bonus at work that we hope will be commensurate, 
and that we would be substantially disappointed with if it did not reflect the amount of work that we'd put in to earn it. The inheritance that's held out, the bonus for, if you will, the bonus for our perseverance far outweighs our expectations, our hopes, our imagination, and our conception of what it's actually like. Primarily because it was earned for us by Christ. We know this is a certifiable fact because of the way that Peter describes that inheritance. It is imperishable. It is undefiled. It is unfading. These are ter- terms that we use to say what it is not. Normally, if someone were to do this with us, we'd be quite frustrating. We'd be quite frustrated. What are you selling me? Oh, it's imperishable. Okay. It's not very specific. Well, actually, this is the same language that we use to describe who God is. The reason that we do this is because we cannot describe who God is in his essence. We cannot master him. We cannot explain each and every aspect of his being. He is infinite. He is unbounded. He is glorious. Far too glorious for not only a sinful people to describe with sinful words and sinful conceptions, but also far too glorious and mighty for people who are creatures to comprehend. He is so far and above our comprehension that the only way we can understand who God is is by saying what He is not. So God Himself is infinite. That is, He is not bound by time or by space. His attributes are not limited either. They are unbounded in their extent, in their capacity. He is incorruptible. God is not capable of being corrupted. Nothing can dampen or reduce the purity of his being, of his essence. He is impassable. He cannot suffer. He cannot experience emotion. He does not change. So our inheritance is used by Peter, is described by Peter in the same language that we use to describe who God is. And it indicates to us that it's far above and beyond what we in our finite capacity can understand. But we could stop here and we say, but wait, there's more. It's not just that this wonderful inheritance, this heaven and the the God who inhabits that heaven is out there floating in the ethereum waiting for us. Peter indicates that it's actually kept in heaven for us. That is, it cannot be like a castle in this world invaded by foreign armies or by spiritual beings. So no matter what tumultuous things that we experience in this world, no matter how chaotic life in this realm gets, no, however, how, no, no matter how unstable the political scene gets, the economic scene, the cultural scene, the mores of the peoples in, our, in, in America or around the globe, that kingdom cannot be touched. And so you will remember that God guarded the Garden of Eden from the entrance of impurity, the impurity of man after the fall. And in the same way, he now guards, he now stands as the guardian of his own kingdom of heaven so that nothing can pierce its realm. Now that's comforting to pilgrims. 
especially when we turn on the news and we're distraught by all the changes that we see and all the, all the things that lay so far outside of our control and things that oftentimes, and it seems to be in growing abundance, will confront the kind of life that we seek to live as the people of God. And you know what? It's not just that it's kept in heaven. It's kept in heaven for you. When we were children, um, actually still to this day, every year about Christmas time, usually the day after Thanksgiving, once we've acquired a Christmas tree, my family will begin sitting down together for hymns to sing. Well, we, we sing hymns all year long, but uh, we'll gather around following dinner to sing Christmas hymns, to sing hymns about the incarnation, the birth of our Savior. And one of our favorite ones when we were children was, What Child Is This? And the reason for this was because of one line about which my father made a particular point to us each and every time that we sang it. Watch closely. Nails, spears shall pierce him through. The cross he bore, as my father said, for me, for you. Does that point stick? kept in heaven for you. And this leads very naturally to our third point, hope's safeguard. If heaven is preserved for us as, a def- as definite recipients of all its bountiful goodness, as a particular people for whom it's being made ready, then God himself will guard us and ensure that we make it there. Verse 5. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So it's not just because of the resurrection power of the, and indestructible life of Christ that enables us to persevere as pilgrims while we're in the, pilgr- the, the, the wilderness. It's not just the resurrection power of Christ and his indestructible life that enables us to live as those who have been born again to a living hope. God himself pours out the powers of the age to come, guarding us in faith into the new heavens and the new earth. There is, as I like to conceive of it, a leaky pipe from heaven to earth that is dripping down the realities of that age in order that that God's people would drink of its pure water. So instead of guarding us from entrance into the garden, God now guards us on our way through girding up our faith as a militaristic warrior angel into that new heaven and the new earth. And we do, we live, we live surrounded by dangers, we live tossed to and fro as with the turbulent sea, overcome by turmoil and oftentimes hopelessness and the bleaknesses of life. But see how well the apostle understands the infirmity of the people of God, the infirmity of faith, the weakness of faith. How well he understands the human condition. He himself knows how capable and prone we are to wander and doubt and be downcast. The apostle who denied the Lord, the apostle who hung his head. But no matter how weak we are, Peter understands the wonderful news that we ourselves are guarded by God's mighty power through faith. 
In other words, the Lord helps us in our faith that we might cry out, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. A prayer which we are confident that he not only answers because we pray it, and not only because he promises to answer our prayers, but because a very promise of his in Scripture is that he will guard and build up our faith so that nothing can hinder our arrival and those first steps into that sweet and blessed country. So faith is secure in the present and in the future, certifiably for you, children of God. So you can be confident, confident that you, reach, you will reach the goal. So we might then exclaim with the psalmist, though the earth gives way and though the mountains are moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and, the fo- and foam and mountains tremble at their swelling, we don't fear because we know there is a river whose streams make, slap, make glad the city of our God. And we dwell within that city. In part now, in fullness to come. So we have great confidence in the midst of earth-tilting, the earth-tilting happenings of today and tomorrow. We have great comfort and we have great hope in the midst of the wilderness sojournings and life in that bleak environment. We have also great joy and excitement about what we stand to inherit. Our experience then, however dim, however dark, cannot keep Peter the opening of his letter, entertaining these gospel truths and and unpacking them, the reality of these things, no matter how bleak life is, cannot keep the people of God, as Peter indicates, from praising his name. Because he opens this text, entertaining the realities he's about to unpack with doxology. Blessed and hallowed be the name of our Lord Jesus. Now can we understand then why Peter opens this text in this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he opens the first note of his symphony-like letter with. Doxology. Look at what's on his mind. Peter in Babylon, Rome, soon to endure persecution, crucifixion, He's not overcome with doubt. He's not overcome with turmoil. He's not overcome with sadness. He's not overcome with what he hasn't gotten. He's not overcome with the tragedies that have afflicted him in his life. He's not overcome with the things that he didn't get because, and that he thought he deserved because he was a faithful servant of the Lord. What dominates Peter's mind is praise and glory at the realities and the goodness of what God has accomplished for us in Christ Jesus and the rich provision that he's made for us. There's no other religion like this that holds out to its people such an objective sense, such a concrete sense of the inheritance that awaits them and the certainty that it has been earned not by them, but by their Savior and of the certainty that their faith will be held up and and established and rooted firm until they make it to that day. Peter the pilgrim, in the face of the bleak realities of life, was bold, excited, joyful, and confident, knowing that indeed he has a beautiful inheritance, one which God would deliver him to through the guardianship of faith. 
And so too you pilgrims can be confident, excited, joyful, comforted, hopeful, with a radiant hope, longing for that home, confident that he will guard your faith until that day. And so suddenly the not-so-surprising fiery trials that barge their way in retain very little power in our lives, don't they? Because our hearts are transfixed on the glory and the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ and the, the surety of our inheritance with him. That we will be his people in fullness and behold his face in the face of his son. So no longer then do these, uh, these mountains and these trials that we experience seem like giant mountains that perpetually blot out the face of the sun, but instead they become small clouds whose momentary presence in the face of the sun makes all the more real the goodness and the warmth of the sun on a cool, windy day. They become a landmark, something that points us forward to what we have. And so something also shifts in the posture of our hearts when we focus on these realities, when our hearts and the theater of our minds is dominated by this. Our gaze shifts from turmoil and sadness and pity to his goodness and to the good country we await and the good Savior that we await, and it moves us to a place of praise. Let's pray. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we do now give you praise. Having contemplated the glories of heaven, having contemplated the beautiful Savior that awaits us, our bridegroom, we bless and we praise your holy name. We thank you for the joy that you instill in our hearts. We ask that you would build it up even more, that others might sense too what you have accomplished for us in your son, Christ Jesus. Amen.